0: So you may already know this about me, but about four years ago, I wrote a book called The Lipstick Gospel. It was my very first book. It's a travel memoir and it's the story of my testimony. It's the story of how God got the attention of a very lost, very broken, very messy sorority girl and how he totally transformed her, well, my life. This was a hard story to live through, that's for sure. And as you'll soon get to hear, the story starts in a season where all of my most important relationships had totally fallen apart. I was going through a brutal breakup. I was deeply lonely in my friendships. My relationship with myself was a wreck and I didn't have a relationship with God yet. Not only that, but I was pretty sure I didn't want one. Now, all of that changed when I was studying abroad in Europe for the semester and I ended up becoming a Christian in the Sistine Chapel of all places. But I'm totally giving away the ending here. You'll get to hear more about that soon. Well, as I was planning our episodes for season six, I realized that there are a lot of y'all that haven't heard this story yet. And I think it's time we change that. I sent my friend Taja, who you've gotten to meet here on the show, a copy of the Lipstick Gospel when we first became friends a few years ago. And she sent me a text a few days later telling me how much she loved getting to hear more of my story. She said, I wish all of my friends came with their own book. It was just such a cool way for us to connect, for her to see where I'm coming from and what brought me to the place where I am today. It instantly made our friendship so much deeper. So that's my hope for this episode too. I want you to know my heart and where I come from, and I think the very best way for us to do that is for me to read the beginning of the Lipstick Gospel to you. And as I was planning out season six, this really did sound like such a good idea to me. It sounded like a good idea until I actually started reading the book into the microphone. And as I did that, I started to feel extra vulnerable. I found myself wondering, what's our Girls' Night community gonna think of me if they hear these things about me? I mean, I know that lots of y'all have already read the book, but somehow it felt different to read the story out loud to you. My first instinct as I was reading, I can't believe this, was to clean it up. I wanted to gloss over some of the messy, stupid things I had done. I wanted to make myself look more polished or cleaned up than I was, but I had to stop myself right there and remind myself of one of my very favorite truths. Our testimonies are important, not because they make us look good or bad in my case, but because they're proof of what God is capable of doing in our lives when we open ourselves up to him. And that's what I hope you hear as you listen to this story. My hope is that as you learn where I was at the beginning of my story, it gives you an even deeper appreciation of how wonderful and redemptive and transformative our God is. He can do amazing things in our lives. He has in mine, and I know He can in yours too. And actually, that brings me to the biggest reason I wanted to share this book with you. I want to share this book with you today because I think there are some women in our community who might really need it. Maybe you've been going through a hard time lately, or maybe you feel like you're in a rut in your relationship with God. Maybe you've never had a relationship with God, but you think you might want one. Maybe you've made a lot of mistakes lately and you feel like you've messed things up beyond repair. Or maybe you're going through a heartbreak of some kind or navigating a major transition or upheaval in your life. Maybe you just need some inspiration, some comfort, and a reminder that God loves you and has amazing plans for your life. The Lipstick Gospel is a story about all these things, and it's a love letter for all these moments in our lives. It's the story of how God met me in the messiest, most mistake-filled, most heartbroken season of my life and how He turned it into something positively beautiful. By the way, He can and will do the very same thing for you. So this is crazy to me, but almost 100,000 women have downloaded and read the Lipstick Gospel so far. And I cannot get over the ways that God has used this story. It makes all that messy vulnerability totally worth it. I just have to share one quick story with you really quickly before we dive in. It's from a sweet reader named Jenny, and she sent me this message a while back with this story. She said, Stephanie, I just finished the lipstick gospel and I wanted to thank you for sharing your story. I have never read something so relatable. I also wanted to tell you how I came across your book because it was all God. The story is so cool. So for the last few months, I've really been struggling. I've been struggling with my faith and with singleness. I've been struggling trying to trust God's plan with my life and with my love life specifically. Well, I was having a particularly hard day a few days ago, it seemed like there were happy couples everywhere and I spent most of the day with a hurting heart, wishing I was in a relationship. I walked into a small shop and looked around for a while before totally out of the blue, a girl about my age walked up to me and asked me if I'd heard of you. I said no and she proceeded to tell me that I needed to read your book. She said she saw me and instantly thought of the lipstick gospel and she felt this nagging feeling in her heart that she was supposed to tell me about it. Now, usually I just brush off book recommendations. I'd put the name down in my notes app and totally forget about it. But as she pulled up your Instagram and told me more about the lipstick gospel, I knew I had to read it. The minute I got in my car, I downloaded the book and I started reading it the second I got home. I read and read and read until I'd made it all the way through the book. I finished it in one day. I laughed, I cried, I saw myself in you, and afterward I felt closer to God than I ever have before. I felt like God was in all of it, in your story, in the girl telling me about it. The timing was just perfect and it was exactly what I needed to hear right now. Thank you so much for writing this story, Stephanie. I'm so, so grateful. Guys, I just can't believe her words. I couldn't believe it when she sent me that story. I love it so much. And really, I don't know who the girl was who gave Jenny a copy of the Lipstick Gospel, but friend, thank you for doing that. I'm so glad you did. And really today, I feel like that girl in the shop. I have a copy of the Lipstick Gospel in my hands and I'm bringing it to you saying, friend, I think God might have something for you in here. So we're gonna dive in in a second here, and I'm gonna read the first third or so of the Lipstick Gospel to you. I feel like this is story time with Steph, but one last logistical note before we dive in. So like I said, in this episode, I'm gonna be reading the first third of the book to you, but when we're done, this is where you can pick up a copy of the book so you can keep reading right away and hear what happens next. You can pick up a free digital copy of the Lipstick Gospel by going to stephanymaywilsoncom slash Lipstick Gospel download, or you can pick up a paperback copy in my shop. It's smaywilsonshop.com. And as always, you can always find those links over in our show notes. We have all of our show notes over at stephaniemaywilson.com slash blog, and you can find all the links for everything as well in my Instagram profile. I'm at Wilson over on Instagram. Okay, so friends, you ready? Without any further ado, here are the first few chapters of my book, The Lipstick Gospel. Introduction If you've ever traveled, you know that there are two kinds of sojourners, those who travel with a map and those who don't. Traveling without a map is the sexy way to travel. It's the makings for an adventure, going wherever the wind takes you, hopping on a train to a city whose name you can't pronounce, and meeting a quirky cast of characters along the way. Then there's the other kind of traveler, the kind that can't stand this mapless, whimsical sort. These kinds of travelers really should run their own travel agencies with their attention to detail, their library of guidebooks and strategic plan for how they're going to see everything worth seeing in their country of choice. These two groups exist in life too, the people with a map and those without. People with maps have five-year plans. They're your type A personalities, head down intent on getting from point A to point B. Then there are the more easygoing personality types, the wanderers, those who appreciate the scenic detour. They lag behind, nose deep in a scoop of gelato. Maybe they'll stay an extra week or a month. Who knows? They sure don't. Either route can bring you to arduous places or lovely places. Sometimes you arrive at your destination and it looks nothing like you thought it would. And sometimes when you get lost, you stumble upon something more perfect than you could have found on your own. I was a person with a plan, but I've never gotten to where I was going. Not because I got lost, but because I was rerouted along the way. Chapter one. The writing on the mirror. I'll be home in 15 minutes. Are you guys leaving for the bar yet? I shouted into my cell phone trying to make my roommate hear me over the girls laughing in the background on her end. I don't know. We're leaving soon. Just hurry. I pressed down harder on the pedal. I knew I was cutting it close. David Guetta was performing at a club in Denver that night and some fraternity guy had rented a fleet of decked out party buses to bring everyone to the event. All my friends were going and at the last minute, hating the idea of being the only one left behind, I bought a ticket. I am so late. Everyone is probably already ready to go, I thought, gripping the steering wheel tighter. Hell, they're probably already drunk. I have a lot of catching up to do. The truth is that I didn't really want to go to the concert. I loved David Guetta, and I still do, but I wasn't in the mood for a night out. My limbs felt heavy as I pictured the hassle of getting dressed up, of making small talk, of trying to have fun. What I was in the mood for was a week-long nap and a pint of Ben and Jerry's, but I was hoping a night out might serve as a welcome vacation from the thoughts I'd been drowning in recently. With my oversized work bag slung over my shoulder, I raced around the corner of the imposing dollhouse-like mansion that was my sorority house. I sprinted up the wide stone steps, taking them two at a time. Then, ignoring the throngs of party-ready girls congregating in the front hall, I slipped through and bounded up to my room. I tore through my closet and tossed options behind me, none of them quite fitting the bill. Too fancy, too old, too stuffy, too ratty. Coming up empty, I peered into the hallway where girls were putting their final touches on their club wear. How do they do it? I wondered, narrowing my eyes at their effortlessly stylish ensembles. They always looked like they'd just stepped off the cover of a magazine, and no matter how hard I tried, I could never seem to pull that off. I shuffled back to my closet, more convinced than ever that everything hanging inside was hideous. Darn it, why do I never have anything to wear? Running out of time, I surveyed my options again and then selected a plain black dress, yanking it off the hanger and slipping it over my head. It wasn't particularly cute, and the outfit was devoid of creativity, but it was the best I could find. If I did my hair and my makeup with enough flair, I figured I could get away with the plain selection. I wasn't particularly skilled in the hair department either, but I had a secret weapon for that one. Carolyn, the president of our sorority, was an expert with a comb, and I was convinced she could have teased any head of hair into submission. If I hurried, I knew she could improve the situation. Peering into the mirror in our bright community bathroom, I swiped on layer after layer of eyeliner and bronzer. I wasn't worried about subtlety. I squinted at my reflection, turning my face from side to side to examine my work. I guess that'll have to do. I took one last look in the mirror before giving up and sprinted downstairs to bring my mop of blonde hair to the pro. I flopped onto Carolyn's desk chair that was pulled up to her dresser and peered into the large mirror she'd used to create a makeshift vanity. I held pieces of my hair obediently as she doused others with hairspray. She backcombed them ferociously, teasing them until they were matted, tangled, and actually had some volume. Impatient, I checked the time on my phone. Shoot, how did it get so late? I pictured my friends upstairs, grabbing their bags and taking pictures together, none of which I'd be in because I'd taken too long to get ready. For the thousandth time that night, I wished I had better clothes, better makeup, better hair, better something, anything to make me feel like I could hold a candle to the women around me. Being surrounded by some of the most beautiful, confident, talented women on campus usually left me wishing I could be one of them instead of having to be me. If I were a team captain in high school gym class, I'm fairly certain I would have picked myself last for my own team. They say we are our own worst critics, but I was my own worst enemy. I criticized everything about myself—my clothes, my appearance, my personality, any imperfection my mean little thoughts could find. I'd speak up in a conversation, and then once my words were out, the diatribe would begin— "'Why did you say that?' I'd ask myself. "'You are so embarrassing. That was so dumb.' But I wasn't ready to give up yet. I was convinced that with enough polish, duct tape, and hard work, I could become the kind of person I was proud of. I was sure my life could feel as fulfilling on the inside as it looked on the outside. That night was another chance to start over. As Carolyn teased and sprayed and shaped my hair, I tried to distract myself. I looked around her room. Books and magazines and photos and clothing were strewn everywhere." Her life seemed so fun to me, so wild and untamed and full of people who loved her. Her friendship seemed to seep into every nook and cranny, exploding with color and life and spilling onto the floor. Even though we were in the same sorority, my friendships didn't feel like that. I thought that being in a sorority meant living in a house full of best friends, and it did in some ways. But it didn't mean best friends, not the kind I'd hoped to find anyway. To me, best friendship meant you were safe to leave the room without knowing people were going to talk about you once you were gone. It meant you were free to be yourself without being criticized or made fun of. I had friends, certainly, but I felt frantic inside of my friend group, trying to manage their opinions of me and scrambling not to be left behind. I bounced in Carolyn's chair, my bare heels swinging hard against its metal legs. I was like a sprinter at the starting line, rigid and ready to bolt the second she gave my hair one last spritz of hairspray. Pre-gaming, getting drunk before the party, waits for no woman and I was in desperate need of some liquid courage. My eyes wandered down her huge mirror, taking in the photos and clippings and ticket stubs taped along the side. And just as I was about to look away, my eyes landed on a quote. It was in the top right-hand corner of the mirror, and I couldn't believe I'd missed it before. It was written in lipstick, in round, perfect letters. It said, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. In that instant, the world screeched to a halt. My eyes zoomed in on the words and everything else faded away, quiet and fuzzy in the background. My insides had gone cold and somehow warm all at the same time. That was it. That was the quote I wanted to define my life. I squeezed my eyes shut tight, trying to picture a life that was so good, I wouldn't believe it even if I'd been told. I couldn't picture it, but I wanted to keep trying. What is that from? I demanded, looking up at the quote. The Bible, Carolyn answered. The David Guetta disaster. Steph, we're leaving. One of my roommates called a few minutes later from down the hall. I scooped up my coat and heels from Carolyn's bed, thanked her with a quick hug, and then dashed down the stairs. My friends and I slipped and slid our way up the hill towards The Goose, a bar near campus where the buses were waiting. The weather hadn't managed to muscle its way up past zero, and our feet were freezing in our strappy stilettos. The Goose was always our bar of choice. The drinks were cheap, and it was within stumbling distance from our house. Regardless of where our misadventures of the night took us, we always found our way back to The Goose. The warm bar was a respite from the stinging mountain air. I was so glad to be out of the uncharacteristically depressing Colorado weather, although it reflected my mood perfectly. Lately, i began begun wondering if I was depressed, a label that had always frightened me with its severity. I felt listless and heavy. Nothing felt exciting, and I cried more than I wanted to admit to anybody. My life looked great from the outside. I made sure of that. I was a journalism major and at the top of my class. I was in the best sorority on campus, and I went to all the best parties but I rattled around inside my perfect life. My eyes looked like the windows of an abandoned house whose heat had stopped working years ago. I wasn't sure what made me come alive anymore. I hadn't felt truly happy in as long as I could remember. And there was another small detail. I was nursing a seriously broken heart. I repeated that Bible quote in my head again. I was really hoping it knew something I didn't. Weaving through the masses of Getta fans, I made a beeline for the bartender. I had missed the pregame entirely and did not want to go to the concert sober. I ordered two double whiskey sprites, my friend's variation to the classic whiskey Coke, and with a drink in each hand and both straws in my mouth, I sucked them down before the buses arrived. They're here. I heard the shout and looked around, realizing my friends were gone. I glanced out the window just in time to see the last of my roommates climbing up onto a bus before I pulled away. Thankfully, I spotted two familiar faces, friends from a sorority across campus, and I weaved my way through the crowd before I lost them too so the three of us could board the last bus together. The bus shook with the beat of the pulsing techno music. Finding a seat, I looked around at the faces of my fellow Geta fans. Many of them were unfamiliar, except for my two friends and a guy who had hooked up with almost every single girl I knew. We had lost track of exactly how many. The bus rambled down the highway, and after a few minutes of laughing and yelling over the techno music, I caught his eye. That guy wobbled over to me, not an easy feat on a moving bus, just as I noticed I wasn't up to everyone else's level of total inebriation. Some guy on the bus had a crystal decanter full of Southern Comfort, which, which is a really weird thing to bring on a party bus, but I didn't realize that at the time, and so quickly making friends with him, I asked him for a sip. The bus cheered as I took gulp after gulp of the syrupy alcohol straight out of the decanter, only stopping long enough to take a sip of Red Bull to wash it down. For the record, I hate Southern Comfort, but my chugging paid off because that guy was now friendlier than ever. It may have been the outfit I'd cobbled together, or the makeup I'd slapped on my face, or my sudden surge of alcohol-sponsored confidence, but my cold insides felt just a little bit warmer in the glow of his attention. We made small talk for a few minutes, or whatever the drunk party bus screaming over techno music equivalent is, and then he pulled a small plastic bag of white powder out of his pocket, offering it to me. Now, I am nothing of a drug connoisseur, but I recognized the white powder as molly, a form of ecstasy that was getting pretty popular with people I knew. He encouraged while I debated. I wasn't a habitual drug user or a drug user at all, but something about the beat of the music and the deviousness of his smile had me wondering if maybe all of that was about to change. I reached for the bag, ignoring the fact that I had no idea what to do with Molly. Snort it, eat it, put it on your gums. But just as my hand grazed outside of the plastic, I locked eyes with my friend, Jess. Jess had always been a good influence on me. She was fun, certainly, but smart. I could rely on her for good advice when I needed it. And in this moment, I needed it, desperately. In a sudden, surprising moment of clarity, I stood up, almost knocking the bag out of his hand. I grabbed Jess's arm, pulled her aside, and whispered, to the best of my ability, over the beat of the music, tell me not to do it. Somewhere deep below my so-co-soaked brain, I knew that I didn't want to. I knew that I wasn't over my head. I knew that no matter how drunk I got, no matter how unhappy I was, drugs weren't something I wanted to get well acquainted with. She tilted her head down just the littlest bit and stared me straight in the eyes. Don't do it. So I didn't. That was my last memory of the night. The next day, the afternoon sun streamed through my bedroom windows despite the best effort of my tightly drawn blackout shades. I rolled over groggily, and that's when the first stop of pain zinged through my left side. Startled by the pain, I tried to sit up, but moving made it worse. My head began to throb with it. Brain injury? My muddled thoughts were frantic as my mind was trying to wake up. Giving up on movement, I laid flat on my back and deduced that I'd either been hit by a bus and forgotten about it, A real possibility, or I was suffering from the hangover of a lifetime. But hangovers don't usually leave bruises. What happened to me last night? I tried to roll over again, wanting to bury my head under my pillow away from the offensive sunlight, but the stabbing pain was insistent and serious, and I couldn't seem to bend my arm. What is today? How did I get home? What happened? I started to panic. I checked myself for all the physical signs of sexual assault. I knew what to look for. I was the one who made freshmen go through this kind of training. But no, everything felt normal. Everything except for my head and my left arm. My thoughts shifted to my own transgressions. Who do I have to apologize to? Did I do something stupid? I don't think I did anything terrible last night, did I? But I couldn't remember a thing, so I wasn't the best witness to testify to my behavior the night before. I like to call this the moral hangover. It's just as serious as the real thing, if not more. It permeates your insides until every crevice of you is sick with guilt and shame and embarrassment over whatever stupid things you did the night before. Of these, I was an expert. As I scrambled for my phone, a distant memory became clearer of Jess there with me on the bus. I dialed her number, hoping she could fill in the details. According to Jess, I took several more sips from the crystal decanter before I stumbled off the bus holding hands with the Molly guy. I tripped on the curb and tried to regain my composure, but it was too late. Molly Guy, figuring I was more trouble than I was worth, walked off into the club without me. As if that wasn't humiliating enough, I grabbed Jess's arm, telling her I needed to use the restroom, and pulled her into an alley behind several cars. As I tried to stand up, I lost my balance and fell hard onto the concrete, nothing breaking my fall except for my arm, my head, and my makeshift toilet. A bouncer finally spotted me and could see I wasn't in any shape to be making memories with Geta. He hailed me a cab, Jess helped me inside, and they watched as the taxi pulled away to drive me home. Little did the bouncer know, home was an hour away. My night was over before it even really started. Nobody knew what happened to me at that point, but I must have been able to tell the cab my address. He must have gotten me home safely, $85 later. I must have put myself in a pajamas and gotten into bed, and there I was. The left side of my body was scraped and bruised, speckled with little bits of gravel, and I was surprised and not entirely sure I hadn't broken anything. Everything ached. My hangover was debilitating, but it didn't hold a candle to my moral hangover. My life had gone from bad to worse in 12 hours, and I was mad. I was mad that the night did nothing to make me feel better. I was mad at myself for getting so out of control. I was mad that no matter how out of control I got, it never seemed to make me as happy as it made everyone else around me. But more than being mad, I was scared. Drinking was such a normal thing for my friends and me. Blacking out from drinking too much was all in a weekend's work, and a party wasn't a party if someone didn't do something stupid. But last night was something altogether new. As I lay there, my insides shaking from dehydration, I was genuinely scared. My mind flipped through a slideshow of all the terrible things that almost happened the night before. In my mind, I kept seeing that guy pull the baggie of white powder out of his pocket, and I cringed as I remembered how close I was to taking it from him. I thought about the crystal decanter and wondered how much I'd actually had to drink. Thought about my fall and the fact that I could have gotten seriously hurt. And I thought about the cab driver. Thank God he'd been kind. Thank God he had taken me home. Thank God. This is what rock bottom must feel like, I thought to myself. And then, for the millionth time that week, my thoughts drifted to Kyle. I tried not to think about him, but I just couldn't help it. Without him, I didn't know who I was anymore. Part of me wondered what I was actually living for. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Friends, springtime is finally here, but that also means allergy season is in full swing. I have always struggled with allergies, and I don't know about you, but I am especially allergic to cats. More on that in a second. Well, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P slash friendship. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Chapter 2. Butterflies Like Bumper Cars Every once in a while, there are those great loves. Sometimes they don't make sense, and they're never perfect, but they're so intoxicating that you tumble head over heels as deep into love as you're able to dive, swearing you'll never come up again for air. That's how I fell in love with Kyle. Kyle was different from any guy I'd ever met, charming in a way that caught you off guard. He wasn't the first guy you'd notice in the room, not for the usual reasons anyway, but he was mesmerizing. He was funny and creative. He was the kind of person that gives off the air that he understands something wild and passionate about the world, the kind of person that makes you want to know his secret too. As it usually happens, I didn't have any idea what Kyle would end up meaning to me when we met. When we did meet, it took about four seconds for Kyle to ask me out, and about four seconds after that for me to decide I wanted to say no. I wasn't ready for a relationship. My heart was still tender from my last breakup. I was not looking for anything serious. I tried to say no. I gave it my best shot, but he persisted and he made me laugh. So after a few minutes on the phone, I heard myself agreeing to go on a date with him, despite my hesitations. We went on that date and then on another and then on another. We explored corners of the city I'd never noticed before. He took me to restaurants I'd never heard of and ice skating downtown. Our dates were always elaborate and always a surprise. He was the best at surprises. And more often than not, I'd come home to flowers or a present on my second floor balcony. I never found out how he got those up there. A ladder, maybe? We could talk for hours and never run out of things to say. And that was my favorite part. He quickly became my best friend, bringing out my inner dreamer and adventurer. He understood me in a way that nobody ever had before. And the way he looked at me made me believe that I really might be something special. But he still hadn't convinced me to date him. My high school love had broken my heart and I wasn't ready to open up again, but he didn't quit. Kyle and I talked on the phone every night for six months before I agreed to be his girlfriend. We would talk about everything, about our days, about who we wanted to be, about our families and what life looked like as we were growing up. It became my favorite part of my day, snuggled up in my bed with my phone pressed against my ear. He was just a few miles away, but this felt safer than being in person somehow. And it was during these phone calls that Kyle created a space for himself in my heart. One Friday night when we were both home from school, Kyle took me to dinner at a hole in the wall restaurant a few miles from my parents' house. It's one of my favorite spots because it's an old Ogie bar and most of the regulars ride motorcycles. It's a total dive, but it has a great view and a patio that is perfect for drinking beers on warm summer nights. I made a point of spending as many summer evenings there as possible. So that's where we were, sitting out back, eating tacos and drinking beer, talking about a thousand things like we always did. But after a while, his face grew serious and he told me why he'd wanted to go to dinner that night. Stephanie, we need to decide what we're doing here. I can't go on being in this middle ground with you. It's too painful, he grimaced. Come on, I started. We'd talked about this before, not directly necessarily, mostly because I would dodge the subject every time I saw it coming. But he stopped me. He was serious this time. I had to choose. Logically, I understood we couldn't go on being friends like this. He was too much a part of my life to leave room for anyone else. He was the one I would call whenever anything happened in my day. He was the first one I wanted to tell what I was thinking or feeling or wondering. He'd become my best friend, a pillar in my life, and I couldn't stand to lose him. But I could also see how much this middle ground was hurting him. I had to either be his girlfriend or let him go. So he hit me with a question directly, not letting me avoid it anymore. Stephanie, I want you to be mine. Will you please be my girlfriend? The sincerity of his words reverberated in my heart, bouncing off the walls and against the old scars and heartaches. I picked up my nail polish, avoiding his eyes. I still wasn't ready. I didn't think I was, but he was my best friend and I didn't want to picture my life without him. So I slowly raised my head, looked him in the eyes and said, yes, that yes was all it took. That yes was like jumping into a tunnel slide at a water park, the water rushing me down the slick surface until I plunged into the pool below. I fell in love with him hard and fast and deeper than I knew I was capable of. I was head over heels. We spent every moment together, sleeping together at his house every night. I even had a toothbrush there. He bought it for me, a clear plastic pink one. It sat in his toothbrush holder right next to his blue one. We cooked together and dreamed together. We went on dates and adventures and did our homework together. Every moment was better with him in it. And when we were apart, I thought my heart was going to fall out with how intensely I missed him. I felt like I'd arrived somehow, like my life had found this missing piece. This man loved me and understood me and made me believe I was actually good the way that I was. I was smart and funny and interesting. I was going somewhere. I felt like I could take on the world when he was around. I felt like his love somehow made me taller, able to look the world in the eye and give it a firm handshake. We weren't making any big plans for marriage, but we almost didn't have to. We'd each found our person, our soulmate. We combined our lives as much as we could. His family was my family. My family was his. We gave each other the deepest parts of ourselves like a gift— We didn't even have to stop and wonder if it was wise or if we trusted each other. We did, unequivocally. Here, take my whole life, I said, without even a second thought. It was perfect. But, like most things, it also wasn't perfect. No matter how hard we tried, his love couldn't compensate for all the other ways I was unhappy. No matter how much he tried to love me, my tank just never stayed full. I still didn't feel quite happy enough, good enough, secure enough, safe enough. He was my life raft, and I was gripping on with both hands, but we were sinking because I hadn't yet learned to swim, and he couldn't swim for both of us. Also, changes in his life and in his family had zapped him of the joy and the confidence I'd fallen in love with, and after a year of dating, we realized that the hole we were both in was too deep to climb out of together. I didn't believe we were breaking up. He was a part of my life, a part of me. Our lives were so intertwined, I could not fathom what it would look like without him. I knew we were breaking up, but I thought it was temporary. It had to be temporary. This couldn't be real. When I pictured every scene in my life's future, he was there. I couldn't conceive of a reality where this could be permanent. We talked around it for days, trying to solve problems one way or compensate in another. We tried to talk through it again, but it wasn't a problem between us. It was a problem with us individually and no compromises or conversations were gonna fix it. When we finally broke up, we sat in his car parked in front of my house. I knew it was over. We'd said the words, but I could not get out of the car. I couldn't watch him drive away, knowing that he wasn't coming back. And so I sat there. We both did. We talked a little and we cried a lot, but mostly we just sat there, the grief pushing against the floodgates, ready to overwhelm us at any moment. Finally, having mustered up just an ounce of courage and not knowing what else to do, I turned to him. I love you, Kyle, I said, before getting out of the car and shutting the door behind me. Afterwards, I couldn't believe it. I kept thinking it would get better, that he would call me or that we'd run into each other and realize we had been so wrong and that we should be together no matter what. But that phone call never came. Neither of us knew what would happen next. We hadn't considered the fact that we still lived in the same town or that all of our friends were the same. Our lives were inextricably linked and we didn't have a plan for what life would look like apart. A Few days later, my roommates and I were throwing a party in the house we'd rented for the summer. We got several kegs and cheap cleared bottles of vodka. We cleaned up the house a little bit and invited our friends over. Before we knew it, our house was packed. My heart aching worse than ever, I drank beer as fast as I could stomach, returning to the keg to fill up my red cup regularly. I was just topping it off when I spotted a familiar face near the door. Kyle had just walked in. I felt like I'd swallowed my heart. Somehow it was up in my throat and in the bottom of my shoes all at the same time. Butterflies were slamming into the sides of my stomach like bumper cars and my tear ducts were stinging. I took a deep breath, steadied myself, and headed his way. I was hoping he'd want to talk. Maybe this was the moment we'd fix it. Want to go upstairs for a few minutes? I asked him tentatively. He agreed, and so we walked up to my bedroom. I sat on the edge of my bed while he stood awkwardly in a room that he was sleeping in just a few days before. I waited for him to apologize, to tell me that he'd been wrong. But when he didn't, I plunged ahead and did it for both of us. I'm sorry, I said. We shouldn't have broken up. I don't want to be without you. I love you. And no matter what we're going through, I want to do it together, I said. My words were spilling out in a jumble but he didn't feel the same way. Stephanie, I think this is right. I'm not saying this doesn't hurt, it absolutely does, but I still think it's the right thing to do. My heart beat faster and my eyes flashed. His words tackled me like a linebacker, pain searing through all of my limbs. I didn't know what else to do. So with my body full of beer, I got angry. Fine, I said, jumping up from my bed. Fine, if that's how you want to do this, then let's do this. I raced around my room, grabbing everything I could find that was his. My arms full of the remnants of our life together, I raced down the stairs with him at my heels. I pushed open the front door, shoved his things into his chest. Get out of my house, I snarled, and I slammed the door behind him. Before tears could fall, I ran back up to my room, barely making it to my bed before I collapsed in a heap. I didn't care that my house was filled with friends and that I was missing the party downstairs. I couldn't see. I couldn't breathe. The pain in my heart was enveloping the rest of me with cancerous speed. In my head, I knew I would survive this, but none of the rest of me was convinced. With no other option, I looked up the ceiling. God, I am out of ideas. You have got to take over from here. Now, I don't know if you've ever reached a place like this, the place where your whole life seems to have fallen apart. Maybe it was your doing or something someone did to you. Maybe you went through a breakup like I did or you got rejected from a school you'd been dreaming about for years. Maybe you lost a family member or a friend or a job or your health. Maybe all the things you were hoping would make you happy finally cracked and fell apart. It's in these moments when even the best laid plans fall to pieces, when we realize that no matter how far in advance we plan or how tightly we try to control our lives, we may not ever get to where we thought we were going. It's humbling, more than anything else. These moments remind us of just how small we are, just how little we're able to do on our own. They break the can-do attitude in each of us, reminding us that life is bigger and more unpredictable than we'd like to believe. These are the moments in our lives that stand out like towers, markers of where it all fell apart. But if we let them, these excruciating endings can mark the beginning of something new. When life cracks us open, breaking our hearts, our determination, and our hope, that's the moment when we finally ask for help, hoping there's something better, bigger, and stronger out there that can rush in and save the day. And it's between these cracks in our chest, our hope, our plans, when that something better can heal places we didn't even realize needed healing and begin a rebuilding process more beautiful than we'd ever dared to imagine. But of course, we're rarely able to see that in the moment. So friends, that's just a snippet of my story, but I hope it was encouraging for you. If you want to read the rest of the Lipstick Gospel, I would love to send a copy your way. You can pick up a digital copy for free by going to stephaniemaywilson.com slash lipstickgospeldownload, or you can pick up a paperback copy of the book in my shop, and you can find that at smaywilsonshop.com. Friends, I cannot wait to tell you what happens next. Truly, the story is just beginning. Okay, friends, that's all we have for today, but we'll be back next week with another episode of Girls' Night, and trust me, you are going to love this one. See you then.